morning. Good, you can hear me. Welcome to our second of the three retreats. And it's such a privilege to see all these faces here that on a Sunday morning, we choose to sit under God's word and just come enjoy each other's company. It's really a privilege. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for allowing for this time to happen, that you cleared our schedules and had all the other things that needed to be taken care of put aside or have, you know, made a way for us to just be here. God, we are excited to see what you have to say to us. We are excited to see that you are a God who wants to meet us where we are. You don't need for us to be any which way. You are ready to take us where we are. So we just submit our time to you, God, that our eyes would focus on you and that we would listen expectantly. In your name we pray. <clears throat> okay, I hope you have your Bibles open to page 785. We'll be parked there for today. <clears throat> I want you to remember a memory of mine with me. I was seven years old. I lived in New Delhi, India, and <clears throat> I remember crowds of people running down the street, mobs of people. Some were holding swords in their hands, some had sticks in their hand, and they were just rushing down the streets. There was rioting happening, there was looting happening, and the reason for such unrest in my neighborhood was because the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, at that time, <clears throat> had been assassinated and the whole nation was going through this kind of turmoil, and this is how it was playing out in my neighborhood. You know, as a seven-year-old, I remember just hiding behind like a window or something and looking out to see what was happening. And one of my vivid memories is a group of men, my dad and along with the other men in the neighborhood, they decided they were gonna form a group and they were gonna keep watch for our neighborhood. They were going to walk around, sit around, be prepared in case anything was going to happen because they were not going to allow our neighborhood to be hurt by any means. So I remember my dad, he had a helmet on his head and he had a cricket bat in his hand and he was, you know, sitting around or walking around along with the other men. And I just remember sensing this uh, readiness in all of them, really. They were not dull, they were not distracted. They were eager to act and ready to act, almost expecting something's going to happen. And this kind of readiness is what we find Habakkuk to be waiting with at the end of our last retreat. So we studied up until chapter 2, verse 1 at last time. And at our last retreat, um, we learned from Katie that Habakkuk was standing on his watch post. He was waiting. He was waiting because he was keeping an eye on Judah, and he was waiting for God to answer him. Habakkuk had some questions for God. So just so you know, Habakkuk was a prophet in the late 7th century BC, and he had been given a burden to bear, something that he saw that others may not have, but he was given the burden to share this. And um, he lived under the, king of, um, under the reign of King Jehoiakim. King Jehoiakim was an evil king. Reason being, he enslaved his people. He had no regard for God, no regard for people. He enslaved them, gave them no money, and made them build a big palace for him so he could live lavishly. Not only that, he taxed them to give their money to Pharaoh. So leadership itself was corrupt, and now the people, the citizens themselves were also being corrupt amongst themselves. And Habakkuk, the prophet, has been given the burden, the eyes to see what is happening. <clears throat> 
Habakkuk is a small book. Three books, three chapters, 56 verses. And honestly, till last September, I never read it before. But man, am I excited to see you know, what you're going to see through God's word here. Um, we'll be studying chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. And in those chapters, there are three things that I would like for you to listen for. Number one, waiting on the Lord will strengthen your faith. It will sharpen your understanding of who God is. Number two, pride will weaken our faith in God. And number three, there is only one way to become right with God, and that's by having faith in Jesus' saving work on our behalf. Three points. One, waiting on the Lord will strengthen your faith. It will sharpen your understanding of who God is. Two, pride will weaken our faith in God. And three, there's only one way to become right with God, and that's by having faith in Jesus and his work on the cross for us. So as I mentioned, the time during which Habakkuk lived was filled with fear, injustice, corruption, greed, and this is among God's own people, the Israelites. And normally we see, you know, in the Old Testament, prophets are given a message from God to relate to his people. But here, Habakkuk does something different. He takes his fears and his questions and his concerns to God. He's crying out to God. And he has two questions. First question is, God, if these are your people and you love them and you've promised to love them, why are you allowing them to live in such disobedience? They're living in corruption. And Habakkuk just cannot understand why God is allowing them to continue living in such disobedience. Many of us are parents, or even when we do see something wrong, our, you know, our way, our, our feel is to correct, especially our children. So he doesn't understand how a good God is not doing anything to bring his children back in line with the right way towards him. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Some bold words from a man to God, you know? But that's Habakkuk's heart. That's his first question. God, why are you not doing something? Why are you being idle? <clears throat> something more amazing is God answers him. And he lets him know, I'm not being inactive. I actually have a plan. And it's not a plan for the future, but it's actually in the works already. Here's my plan. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, who are a more fierce, a more evil, a more disobedient nation to bring discipline to Judah. Just so you get an understanding of who the Chaldeans are, look with me at chapter 1, verse 10. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Chaldeans were bitter, gruesome, and fierce. They had no regard for people. They had no regard for God, for sure. So this is who God was going to use to discipline his people of Judah. 
When Shainu spoke to us last week, she likened it to saying, you know, if Jesus were to use ISIS to bring the godless back to him. It's crazy. No wonder Habakkuk was more confused than ever. So here's his second question. Why, God, are you going to use the Chaldeans to bring discipline to Judah? Because he wanted God to do something true, right? God is doing something true, but this is not how he thought God was going to discipline his people. Habakkuk believed God to be good, so it didn't make sense to him that if God was going to discipline the people of Judah, he was going to use a more evil nation to discipline a less evil nation. So that's where we left Habakkuk. He asked his first question, he asked his second question, and now that he's, he's on his watch post at, um, on verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, he's waiting. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So God is answering his second question. He said, I've shown you a vision. I want you to write this down. I want you to write this down on tablets. And in those days, the tablets could have been made of stone, rock, clay. But the point is, it needs to be written down and displayed. Displayed so no one can miss it. Okay, and um, it's like driving down 95 and you have all those billboards and you just can't miss, you know, what's in your face. God also tells Habakkuk to make the message he's writing very simple, very plain. So simple that even if someone runs by it, they can see what it is and then they can go share that with other people. Look with me at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. God is letting Habakkuk know this vision will come true. It might take some time, it might delay, but it's going to come true. So Habakkuk and the people of Judah are to wait for this vision to come true. They are to wait on what God has said. They are to wait trusting God. So God is inviting the people of Judah, along with Habakkuk, to persevere in their waiting. Waiting is not easy. Waiting has a way of weighing us down. Maybe you've had to wait for something. Maybe to hear back from a job, or about some lab work. Maybe you're waiting on reconcili reconciliation with a friend. Waiting is really hard because everything inside of you wants to do something. And I want you to see what Habakkuk did. He brought his concern to God. He removed himself from where he was got to a quiet place, and he waited expectantly, trusting that God can bring an answer to his questions. You know, Habakkuk's posture is something that we can learn from. He's waiting with patience. He's not demanding. He's not threatening. He's focused, and he's confident that God will answer him. 
He's so expectant, that's why he's waiting. And of course, this whole dialogue between him and God wouldn't be taking place if he didn't believe that God had an answer for him. He was going to have an answer. The Lord is asking those who will be reading this vision, these, this vision on the tablets that you know, they are to wait. They are to be hopeful, expectant, and have continued faith in what God has said. Waiting on the Lord will strengthen our faith because it sharpens our understanding of who God is. In our world today, waiting is a lost art. It's considered a waste of time to wait. I'm sure you can relate with me on this. Do you like same-day delivery? I do. I really do. <laughs> waiting on the Lord is very different, though. It is different than waiting on anyone or anything else. It's a very active process of wrestling. And by wrestling, I mean, you know, we are taking our questions to God, our doubts to God, and we want him to make us understand why we're waiting. What is this about? And we do that through prayer. It's the most engaged way of waiting on the Lord. When you're waiting on God, you are acknowledging who he is, that he's all-knowing, he's good, and more importantly, you are desperate for him, that you are not God. This is so humbling. It takes humility to wait on the Lord. It takes much humility to admit that we don't have all the answers. Habakkuk was humble as he waited. He waited on the Lord because he was begging God to make sense of what was happening around him and also what was going to happen in the future. Friends, what does it look like when you're waiting on the Lord? Are you patient? Are you focused? Are you expectant? Are you full of faith that he can answer your questions? And he will. Waiting on the Lord will strengthen our faith. It will sharpen our understanding of who God is. As Habakkuk is waiting, God goes on in verse 4 and says, look with me, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This verse is the theme of Habakkuk. And this verse may sound familiar because it's mentioned three times in the New Testament. So here God is contrasting between two groups of people, the puffed up and the righteous. What does puffed up mean? It means conceited, arrogant, prideful, self-centered. It's easy to spot someone who is clearly obnoxious, right? But this pride is speaking about an inner attitude of being better than others. Although this term is mainly referring to the Chaldeans who are going to come to discipline Judah, they're also for the people of Judah. Scripture has a lot to say about pride. Listen with me. In Deuteronomy, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. In the book of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The thing about pride is it's very deceptive. It's sneaky, and it has a way of getting into every nook and cranny of our heart. The tricky part is pride looks like confidence. Faith looks like confidence, too. 
We might take pride in the riches that God has given to us. I mean, we choose to live so humbly rather than lavishly, right? We might take pride in having less and just make do with what we have, make the best of it. We might take pride in the way we manage our time. We get so much done. We might take pride in just figuring things out on the go, being carefree about things. We might take pride in the jobs that we have. We might take pride that we choose not to work. Can you see with me? Pride can get anywhere. It says, I can and I am. In our culture, pride is celebrated. It's empowering and encouraged to handle things on your own. And I'm not saying, and I don't think God is saying that you can't have dignity in your work. Pride is different. It's seen as a weakness to ask for help, even God's help. Pride is essentially a belief in yourself, in your gifts, in your skills, in your talents, and a blatant disregard for who God is. It is a stubborn refusal to acknowledge God, who is the giver of every blessing that we have. Pride will weaken our faith in God. Can you see with me that we need God's help to see these places of hidden pride? They're deep-seated, they just sneak in in ways we don't even know. As I've been studying this section, you know, God has made me aware of many such places in my life I'm not surprised, but, you know, it's still not easy to see that. Um, it seems that I don't have control of how sin just infiltrates. It's kind of like going to the beach for an hour and sand gets in everywhere. Um, a few years ago, my husband and I were at a difficult place in our marriage. And um, by God's grace, we've come out of that. He's brought us out of that. But when I think back to that time... I had such a critical spirit towards him. And that was because I thought I was right. <laughs> I couldn't see that there was pride that was preventing me from seeing him for who he is. The Chaldeans and even some of God's chosen people took pride in their own strength, their own power, their own dominion, and they had no regard for who the giver was of such strength and power. I want to see if uh, I can make this connection between waiting on the Lord and pride. Waiting on the Lord takes humility. Pride is a lack of humility. If you have trouble waiting on the Lord, could it be that your pride is preventing you from waiting on the Lord? Pride will weaken our faith in God. It doesn't allow us to be desperate for him. So we just spoke about the puffed up in verse 4. There's this other group of people called the righteous. So what does it mean to be righteous? Who are the righteous? Righteous means excellent, morally right, justifiable, and upright. Scripture has a lot to say about righteous. Listen with me. In Psalms, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. In Proverbs, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. In this verse, behold, his soul is puffed up. Verse 4, it is not upright within him, 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. Those who are righteous will live in contrast to those who are puffed up. Here, the righteous are those who are waiting on the Lord, who are trusting that the vision he has shown to them is going to come true. They live by their faith, trusting God that what he has said is going to happen. Remember, God is giving Habakkuk a vision to share with the people of Judah. God is saying those who trust him will wait. You know, because no one knows when or whether this vision is going to come true, but God is asking the people of Judah, along with Habakkuk, to wait on him, keep looking at him, have faith in him. As I said earlier, there are three mentions of this verse in the New Testament. And uh, I'd like to have you consider one of the references in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is uh, in the New Testament, and it was written by Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wrote many books in the Bible, but at one time, before he met Jesus, he was out to kill anyone who believed in Jesus. He was a zealous Jew. He loved God, but he hated those people who believed in the Son of God because he didn't believe that. But he was, as he was out to kill people who believed in Jesus, one day, Jesus, who had died, who came back to life, met him. And the same thing happened to Paul that happens to us. His life just changed. He went on to live for the glory of God, spreading the gospel of Christ from then on. So I want to tell you about one person who read this work in Romans and just changed his life too. His name was Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an excellent, extremely successful monk because he really believed that if someone were to get a place in heaven, earn a place in heaven, he would have done it. His works were that good. But you know, in all his works, he had this feeling that there was still sin in him, and his good works couldn't erase that sin. So when he came to the book of Romans and read, the righteous shall live by faith, he hated God. Because he couldn't understand how a righteous God could love him and accept him when he had sin in him. God is holy. He is righteous. We are sinful. He saw he was sinful, and those two cannot exist together. So to him, this was a confirmation that God was going to bring his wrath on him no matter how many good things that he did. So you know what he did? He wrestled. Much like Habakkuk, he wrestled with God. And the word that he hated, righteous, that he hated, became so sweet to him because God revealed to him that the righteous shall live by faith, not in his works, but in a person, in Jesus. This very understanding, this very principle, is what created the worst chasm in Christian history. It split the Catholic Church, and it started the Protestant Reformation. There's a big word that explains this righteousness that you know, we receive because of Jesus. It's called justification. Justification is a legal word. So imagine a court scene, and you're standing before God, awaiting judgment. Why are you awaiting judgment? If I were to take you back to last week and have 
every one of your thoughts and actions and deeds displayed on this screen behind me. Were they all good and generous and loving and kind? I would be absolutely mortified if you could see my thoughts and my words and my deeds. Even some of my good words, deeds, and thoughts were done with the wrong intent. Those are sins. So if I was standing in front of God, God should make, just give me the verdict of guilty. But you know what? Something beautiful happens. A great exchange takes place. God sent Jesus, his son, to stand in my place and to stand in your place and to take that guilty verdict from us. And he gave us his righteousness. So we exchange our sin for Jesus' righteousness. And therefore, we can come to God directly now. We don't need our works. We don't need a person. We can come to him freely as God's own daughters. Don't get me wrong. Having God's righteousness or being justified doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sins. We still do. But we can come to God with them and he can change us. In Romans we read, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And this was our story. But it's no longer when we trust in Jesus. How can this be? Because by faith we trust that God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And now our affections change. Our words change. Our actions change. Now the good works, the good thoughts, the good deeds all come out of a place of abundance of thanksgiving rather than a chore that we do to earn something. It's true, the righteous shall live by faith. But please don't miss the fact that God is just. He will judge sin. You know, he, he brought judgment or he brought discipline for Judah by way of Chaldeans and he was going to bring judgment to the people of um, the Chaldeans as well. Look with me at verse 5 so you get an understanding of why Chaldeans, what their sins were. Verse 5 reads, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This verse tells us that the Chaldeans were drunkards, they were greedy as Sheol, which is another word for hell. They were proud and they were never satisfied like the grave. And later when Sarah speaks, she'll speak about the judgment that God brought to the Chaldeans. Sometimes when my kids don't listen to me, I'll get down to their level, look into their eyes, maybe hold their face and say, look at mom. In times of wrestling, God is looking at us. He's telling us, look at me. Look at him. The Lord said to Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. The Lord said to Habakkuk and to the people of Judah, keep looking at me, keep waiting, keep trusting that I'm your God. Like Habakkuk, we are heartbroken by the sin that's not just around us, but even in us. Like Habakkuk, we are still waiting on the Lord because there's so much discord around us and within us. 
Like Habakkuk, we are still living by faith and trusting in God's promises. We are living, trusting his promise that nothing can separate us from God and his love because of Jesus. If you want to know this great God, will you ask him to give you eyes to see him? You know, our God welcomes our questions and doubts. He does not shy away from them, or he does not tell you not to have them. He's good. He wants us to wrestle with him so we can sharpen our understanding of who he is. He wants us to come to him, to put away our pride. He's just. He's merciful. And just like Habakkuk, we can continue to trust him and live by faith. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the privilege to be able to come to you, not needing a middle person, not needing our extra good works. We thank you so much for sending Jesus for us, God. We thank you for the love that you give to us so generously, so undeserved. We pray that these words, God, would just, just go into our hearts and bring forth many, many changes that will glorify you. In your name we pray. of what they think you're like but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone you're a good good father it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. And I've seen many searching for answers. But I know we're all searching for answers Only you provide cause you know just what we